This program is supported by Altus Learn. Did you know that 89% of employees say, if my employer invested in my training, I'm more likely to stay with the organization long-term? An Altus Learn Imaging Campus has the required education for imaging centers to meet annual ACR, IAC, and Joint Commission requirements for radiation and MRI safety and CT dose reduction. An imaging campus not only provides the annual required education, but also provides the imaging center techs with access to over 200 CEs, which are accepted by the ARRT. Including CEs published on the RADCAST podcast, imaging technologists can track all of their CEs through the CE wallet, and imaging center leaders can check the compliance status of each of its team members. Learn more at the bottom of RADCAST.com and click on Get a Campus. Okay, so on today's episode of Turner Talks, we're stretching way outside of my comfort zone, and we're going to give our MRI folks a little love. So I've got some great experts on here, thank goodness, because I just told them I don't know a whole lot about MRI at all. So for those people that don't know a whole lot about MRI, this is your opportunity to learn. For those people that know a lot about MRI, this is your opportunity to learn even more. So we have got two great folks. Anthony's been on the show before and Dania's new on the show. So Anthony, if you want to start and give us just a little bit of bio and then Daniel will move on and let you introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, welcome. My name is Anthony Mungo. I am the uh, director of radiology for uh, New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, in addition, I am the uh, founder and owner of Advanced Imaging Review. Uh, which is a uh, continuing medical education company that provides uh, advanced certifications and uh, and uh, training in, in registry prep for CT, MR, interventional mammography, uh, anything that the technologist is looking to do to advance their career uh, and learn something new is what Advanced Imaging Review does. Um, but as my uh, full-time gig, uh, I am the oversight of... Uh, 200 uh, wonderful employees uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and I've uh, had the pleasure of being here for uh, 15 wonderful years. So uh, thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to uh, the next hour together with three of us. Hello, everybody. My name is Dania Elder. I am the MR Safety Officer at Columbia University and the MR Technologist. Um, a little bit of background about me, I, I have my master's in research and I have my bachelor's in radiologic sciences. So I began my career as a technologist in with Mungo's class over there. <laughs> uh, he may be my mentor. Um, but besides that, I transitioned from hospital and clinical work to research. So now I conduct and help conduct um, cognitive neuroscience images with diseases, um, psychology, um, anything of that matter. So thanks for having me. So like I said, so glad that we have two experts on here that can help us through this MRI um, world. So Anthony, I'll start with you. And I guess since you're in the educational space, I will I'll ask, what makes MRI so different? So I've heard before MRI is the hard one. The physics is weird. You, you know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's a one-off. It's kind of the, it's kind of the weird stepsister. So what makes MRI so different for people who, who have gone the traditional path of radiography? Um, why is MRI so different? 
Well, I think from the safety perspective, I'll get to the education's perspective in a second, but I think from the safety perspective, is it's always on, right? And I think people don't uh, fully comprehend that something can of, of such strength and, and power can always be on and can be a risk to individuals. And I think it's the spinoff of that that really uh, makes it so difficult to understand when it comes to the education, the physics that is so different from your your radiography and your CT, um, that, that it, it takes a unique individual to really uh, comprehend the information that, that the physics uh, is related to when it, when it comes to MR. Um, I tell all my students, I tell my technologists, don't, don't do it because it makes money, right? Do it because you have passion for it and do it because it's your, your career path. That's you, it's something you really want to do and, and engage uh, and learn and continue to grow um, and develop. But don't just do it because it, it's a high paying uh, position. You know, it, it could be a great, like I said last time, it, it could be a great paying job, but it, it could, if it's not for you, it could be really boring also. Right. Right. Um, so it, it, you got to have the best of both worlds. It's uh, it's difficult to learn, um, but it's certainly fun when you do learn all the little intricacies that go along with with MR and uh, and the physics that are behind it. The cross sectional component of it um, is fascinating as well, uh, which is something we'll get into later on. But I, I wanted to just just say that that it's it's difficult to learn because it's people don't really comprehend it's always on, and once you know it's on. The physics that make it always stay on is really something that uh, that plays a big part of it. So, Danny, if you don't mind, could you touch a little bit on that about the physics? And so, keep in mind that there are a lot of people out there like me that don't understand MRI physics. And then, you know, kind of speak to your to your MRI folks as well. What about the physics is different, and what makes it difficult to learn? Right. So, in comparison to X-ray or CAT scan. Those modalities use radiation, so we have a more thorough understanding of ionizing radiation and how that affects the body and how we can induce that into the body when using these modalities. But what happens with MRI is we don't know the physics as well, and we have to apply the physics differently, so it's kind of learning something new. We have three fields when we recognize MRI, it's going to be the main magnetic field or the BL field, the radio frequency field, and then the gradient field. So when we look at it, we have to interpret three different fields and then the human body. So it's a bit difficult and more complex, but once you understand it, it's definitely better. So Anthony also said, don't go into, and I'm going to ask you this kind of a personal question, once again, just for folks out there who may be looking at MRI, um, you know, as a career, he said, don't go into the field just because it pays more. Go into it because you have a passion for MRI. What does a passion for MRI look like? Why MRI over the other modalities? So Anthony, would you like me to answer that or would you like to go? No, you're absolutely. I want you to answer because you do it every day, right? We we teach it uh, with hopes that you find love for it. So I, I want right. you to answer. Um, I mean, from my perspective, I went into the field just because I thoroughly enjoy seeing things that we can't see in the human eye. And with MRI, we get a more complex cross-sectional anatomy, view by view, plane by plane, and you're able to treat, diagnose, and understand what's going on without seeing it from the surface. So that's what attracted me to the field. And 
you know, like Anthony said, some people may find the repetition kind of boring. But when it comes to me, I think every person and their, you know, their issues or whatever worries them or whatever they're there for the, the scan, I think that actually intrigues me because I treat every person differently. And that makes it more, uh, I guess, more entertaining for me because I want to find out what's wrong. So I, I use the imaging modality of MRI as a tool that it should be used for. And I know others may not find it the same. So Anthony, you had mentioned cross-sectional anatomy and Dania just mentioned it as well, how things look may look different on cross-sectional. So as an instructor, how do you teach that to somebody who may be used to CT cross-sectional anatomy or something that they learned in x-ray school? How is the cross-sectional anatomy different? And how do you teach somebody to change that mindset? So usually the CT cross-sectional is, uh, well, CT in general is, is, is what we suggest to students uh, if they have an instant transition that they want to go from x-ray to something else, right? So you know, we feel that the most relevant field after x-ray school is CAT scan because they share the same types of uh, similar physics uh, that right. go along with radiation producing equipment. Um, it, the benefit about going from CT to MR is because if you have a good understanding of CT cross-sectional anatomy, it makes for a smoother transition into MRI. Um, I think going from X-ray to MR, one, trying to learn cross-sectional, and two, trying to learn something when it comes to physics that is completely out of your, you know, your wheelhouse, that's something that you haven't learned in the past two years, uh, could be difficult to, to kind of attain and understand. So when it comes to, you know, more or less the CT uh, cross-sectional, I, I, I believe it's a better segue for uh, a newcomer coming out of x-ray school, and then it's, the good transition goes from CT to MR. So since you have a better foundation when it comes to you know, what does cross-sectional imaging really look like and what will it look like when it goes to MR. Um, so it, it's, it's certainly an easier transition um, from, from CT to MR versus x-ray jumping right into MR. Right. I don't know, Danny, if, if, if you would, would agree, um, but it's it, it's something that when we're asked of our opinion, um, we feel to smooth the transition. Yes, I agree with that. So you've highlighted actually quite a few differences, and maybe that's the reason that MR has its own safety recognition. There's MR, like your your MR radiation safety officer, and so there's MR safety week. Is that because, Dania, is that because of the vast differences and because it's just a complete different knowledge base and skill set? So MR folks just know different things than, than radiographers. Is that why there are is different recognition for like MRI safety week and those types of things? Well, I think if we look back, when you take a look at x-ray, CT, or any type of um, imaging modality that uses radiation, um, these have been out for much longer. If you look at MRIs, they've only been out since the 70s. So there's so much more to learn that we just haven't come across yet. Um, and they are completely different, starting from the machinery, from the field, into the safety aspects. So yeah, they're definitely two complete different safety objectives. So that is definitely a demand and why we need to ever for them. So we'll jump into this safety section or the safety um, discussion about this. And I do a presentation on um, radiation errors. 
and Anthony and I talked about this because um, some of that was sparked by that New York Times article in 2010 um, about radiation therapy errors. So, of course, that's where I started. But when I do this um, presentation for multiple modalities, I pull CT stuff. I've got some new med stuff. And then I pulled the, the, some, some different data and stats on MRI errors or patient accidents. And for the most part, most of those can be attributed to the wrong person being, not the wrong person, but a person receiving an MRI who should not for various reasons. So, Daniel, if you'll speak a little bit to that, how do you screen patients? Why do you need to screen patients? And how do you screen those patients so that we don't, we're not telling a story later about a, an MRI accident? So before we jump into the screening process, I think we need to understand more of those three fields. So when most people think of an MRI, they think of the magnet being, and having projectiles. So if something is attracted to the magnet, it's going to fly to the machine, right? And that's usually what we hear the incidence of when you read about the MRIs, right? So in New York, for instance, and recently in Mumbai, like things such as an oxygen tank that is not um, compatible with an MRI flew into the machine and caused a fatality. So that's usually when we see MRI all across the news. Uh, it is the only modality that also causes a death, right? The other modalities just induce cancer and then cancer is the cause of the death. But MRIs cause fatalities. Um, so that's the first thing. We have to worry about projectiles. So if somebody has a medical device or an implant and it does have a uh, metallic component that is ferrous, and ferrous meaning that it's magnetic, um, that's the first risk. The second risk we have to look at is if they do have an implant or medical device that is okay to go into the machine, is it going to move or torque, or will it cause um, heating, right? So that's with what we associate with the radial frequency field. And then last is the gradient field, which can cause uh, peripheral nerve stimulation. So spasms in the body. So we have to look at these three fields first, and then we have to proceed with screening. So when somebody screens, they're basically telling us any contraindications that may be an issue with the MRI or any type of medical devices, um, any medications they're even on that may compromise their um, ability to take an MRI. So if somebody has something like a pacemaker, you know, we don't advise them to get an MRI. Um, because this could be super fatal. Um, so once we understand that, we screen them normally, verbally and physically. So verbally is just asking them a questionnaire. And then when you go to the physical component, you're going to take a ferris detector and you're going to wand them almost like an airport. And you're going to screen them from head to toe and try to see if they have any magnetic components that they may not even be aware of, right? So you are going to have participants who are going to be able to, you know, talk to you and tell you that they have these components to them. And then you may have people who are in the hospital and they're unable to communicate. So you have to do a thorough screening because not everybody is trained to understand the safety components of an MRI. So not all doctors, not all nurses are able to identify hazards in an MRI zone. So it's interesting you brought that up in some of the same research and data that I looked at. One of the other components, um, maybe a causative factor of accidents in MRI, especially when it comes to patient screening, is that there are so many people involved in that process. So you've got the doctor that orders it and, you know, a nurse or a, 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 a advanced practice practitioner or you know, somebody else. And they said there are just so many people that touch that patient that they don't always realize, you know, 
So it's interesting that you brought up the Ferris screening specifically. So Anthony, as a director of a department, as a director of lots of employees, how do you make sure that patients don't slip through the cracks? How do you make sure that patients aren't touched by too many people and that final, final check is, is taken care of the way it should be? Right. So, so like Danny mentioned earlier, it's, um, we do provide that initial screen. Our patients come in, they fill it out to the best of their ability because a lot of times they don't know what they have implanted. Um, the super important thing is that if they don't know uh, that they present with some sort of card, uh, a, a implantable device card. So we can uh, then take the, the technologist, the, the lead tech, um, can then research and see if it's compatible. Uh, it may be compatible, but it may not be compatible on three Tesla. It's only on you know, 1.5. Um, so we take all those precautionary measures. And the, 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 unfortunately, the patient, there are circumstances that we'll have to reschedule um, because we don't know exactly what's the implant device or if it's safe or unsafe to, to proceed with the test. Um, once that process is completely vetted, then we'll continue with the screening process. Um, if the, the, the patient meets all the criteria, uh, just like Danny said earlier, they'll come in, they'll get bonded with a, with a, like a metal detector type of device. Uh, we have something called uh, FerroGuard or FerroAlert. Uh, patient will come in, they'll do like a little 360 in front of the device. It'll beep if there's anything metallic or ferrous. Um, if they're safe to go, then they'll enter the machine and they'll, they'll proceed as, as, uh, as they normally would do. If for any circumstances the patient doesn't meet the criteria, um, they never even enter zone three, right? Gotcha. So they'll stay out in the waiting area. They'll get, you know, as far as zone two. Uh, but anyone entering zone three has to have clearance of that screening form. Uh, and all the technologists are trained. Even the, the, the clerical staff, they, they play a very, very big part in making sure the patient is properly cleared. And we have all the documentation from the doctor's office uh, prior to even making that appointment. Uh, they'll ask a series of questions on the phone. Do you have any implantable devices? Have you had any surgery? Do you have pacemakers? Um, now, a lot of people think that pacemakers, because they have a, 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 a compatible pacemaker, that it's safe. It's not always safe, right? It's, it's, you, you have a hot zone that you can't scan in. Um, so uh, we have to explain to patients, you know, your physician ordered this examination, but because of the placement of the pacemaker, it's right over the exam where we're going to kind of uh, cone in on or zone in on, and, and it's not safe to proceed. Um, so in these circumstances, there's a lot of interaction when it comes to, to MR um, between the patients, the front desk staff, the, the technical staff, and even the radiologists that have to get on the phone with the, uh, with the physicians to make sure that uh, everything is completely vetted and safe for the patient to proceed. Right. So, um, Anthony just mentioned the different zones, and I know that's a that's a big deal to you MRI folks. So, Daniel, if you don't mind to explain those, um, you know, the zone one, zone, because it seems like the, the closer in you get, the, the more critical it gets. So, do you mind to explain those zones? If nothing else, explain them to me, and then um, that way I better understand, and, you know, what how the zones get, why are they named the way they are, and who can go where? Sure. So we have zonings in any building that has an MRI, and it's really important. Um, like Anthony said, there's so many people who are going to be interacting around or within the MRI, or at least the patients who are going to be in the MRI. So it's important to train and educate all personnel in the building, from the janitors to the, uh, you know, the doctors. Mm -hmm. Everybody should be aware of the zoning system. To be honest, but doesn't happen everywhere. It's pretty hard to train almost everybody, but we try to implement these types of things. Education and knowledge is key. 
But um, these zonings are to allow people to understand, one, that there's an MRI, and two, that these fields can extend beyond the MRI room. So there is a lot of interference if the room is not properly shielded, right? So zone one is usually a zone, a zone that there's no issues in. The general public could enter. It's usually the lobby or floors way above the MRI. Um, zone two is approaching the MRI. So you're gonna see a few warning signs, but once again, it causes no havoc. There's no hazards. Um, in this zone, so it's safe to go through. Once you start entering zone three and zone four, that's when you have to be cautious. So zone two is pretty much the area that you're going to have your participants change in. You're gonna do the screening in these areas just because you want them as far away from the magnetic field as possible. Once you screen them, once they indicate that they have no metallic on them, or if they do, um, you check to ensure that they will be safe to enter zone four. Um, you go to zone three. Zone three is usually the control room. Uh, it's direct access to zone four, which is the magnet room. Mm -hmm. So zone three is where you don't want to enter if there could be a potential issue. It's still safe to enter, but it's direct access to zone four. So you will see a lot of signs in zone three, and then you will see that a door or entrance into zone four, which is the actual magnet room where all the risks are. So, Anthony, then you mentioned education and how, you know, ideally everyone would be educated. What, for compliance reasons, what's the mandatory education? Uh, what does that look like? How often do you do that? And do different um, people receive different types of education? For example, do your, you know, your check-in staff or your front, you know, your front office people, do they receive different type of safety training as opposed to like the, the techs and the, you know, that are working with the magnet? So, I think. MR is the only thing that's universal, right? So when you have uh, radiation safety training, you can have uh, differences in what you teach. Uh, a nurse on the floor that may be treating a nuclear patient because of a therapy they're receiving or um, an environmental worker, a front desk worker, there's differences in that. But when it comes to MR, uh, everyone receives a standard training. Everyone receives it annually. Uh, everyone signs off, uh, signs off that they receive the competency. Um, it's usually online. We'll do like a, like a, a PowerPoint presentation or uh, a, a live grand rounds in the auditorium because we do it also for the residents uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that get onboarded as well. So um, it's annual. Everyone receives it. And there's uh, no difference in the standard of education that's received from the janitor to the technologist. Okay. Yeah. But like, the, the reality is, that, you know, the janitor um, can probably cause the most harm if he doesn't receive the same training as the tech does. You know, it's it, it's a safety concern, and the reality is, janitors don't come in our room. You know, the the techs are the ones who clean it, they're the ones who dust it, they're the ones who mop it. So, um, and, and because it's it's safer to do it ourselves than to allow someone in and, and risk harm. Well, and I think you bring up a good point there um, that there are some common everyday things that can't be in that room and you know there have been pictures on whatever the news or articles or social media or whatever of the you know it looks like a full patient bed that's slammed into and, and I think you mentioned a, an oxygen tank so what are some of those things that we may take for granted that if we are coming from radiography or if we're coming from radiation therapy even um, and we're going to get into those MRI Linux here in just a minute but what are some of those things we may take for granted, Dania, that, that you can't take for granted? Some things that seem like common, everyday patient, um, you know, devices that can't be in the in the MRI suite? Well, to be completely 
honest, it could be absolutely anything. It could be something as simple as a paper clip, and that could, depending on the strength of the magnet, um, it could actually fly towards the magnet at speeds at 35 miles per hour. And if you have a participant laying down in the MRI bed, you could severely hurt them. Um, so everything needs to be screened. And that's why we try to, one, educate, and two, um, implement certain people and MRI personnel, we would call them, um, to man these machines, right? So they're going to stop anybody from even going towards the door, even if they seem like they understand everything. You can't go in unless you're screened and you can't go in even with a pen or your phone or your watch, anything such as jewelry, anything at all may be a problem. And that's, uh, we have the zoning to steer that away. And then we have um, MR labeling. So MR labeling is when it's like a sticker, but three labeling systems. One is MR safe, MR conditional and MR unsafe. So everything such as a chair should be labeled. Anything that's around the MRI should be labeled. So anything safe would be plastic, acrylic, clothing, right? As long as it doesn't have any buttons or sharpeners or zippers, right? Anything that's MR conditional can be um, metallic, but it's under certain conditions. So it's not magnetic, it's not ferrous. And then anything unsafe is going to be completely magnetic, completely ferrous. So anything that's entering the MRI room, such as a tool, it should be MR safe or it should be conditional within that MR strength. So Anthony, I'm going to ask you from a director standpoint again, and this is um, based on you know some of my other work that I do. When it comes to staffing, do you have to extra staff MRI just because of the other components that are associated? Do you have to have um, extra staff there for backup, just for double checking, those types of things? How do you staff an MRI department? Well, we usually do about one and a half to two uh, employees per machine. Um, just for the sake that one's uh, setting up the system, entering all the information, um, making sure the protocols are, are properly set up while the other technologist is in the room, uh, or either outside uh, assisting and putting their belongings in the locker and uh, expediting them to the room, placement on the okay. table. Um, so it's usually about one and a half to two employees um, per scanner. That's, that's the ratio we use. Um, it, it makes for a, a more efficient process when it comes mm -hmm. to scanning. Uh, the, our big thing is, uh, you know, on the inpatient, we, we want to be as most efficient as possible. But on the outpatient side, you know, time is money, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, the longer you take to get a patient on and off the table, the fewer patients we're going to see, the less we're going to make. Um, so, uh, you know, by adding uh, another half or a FTE on that, it pays for itself if I get one or two patients yeah. extra per day. Um, so, uh, for us, that model works. Uh, for certain institutions, like an outpatient imaging center, you may only see one uh, technologist per room um, because it, it's a different circumstance. Their, right. their bottom line is different. Um, but for us, we, li we like to staff it up uh, with more than one technologist. It also varies on the shift, though, Cheryl, as well. Uh -huh. So you're coming in on an overnight shift, you're going to be the only technologist on the machine at right. that time um, because your volume is incrementally lower than it is uh, you know, on your day or evening shift. Um, so that, that's, how we, that's how we staff it. Um, and the same, the same measures apply for the technologists. Yes, some of them like to wear their Apple watches, and some mm -hmm. of them like to, to, to uh, walk in the room and, you know, uh, accidentally leave their wallet in their in their pocket. You know, the mm -hmm. thing is, those magnetic trips, uh, we live in New York, right? So everyone takes the subway back and forth. You, you bring that Metro card or, or your credit card into an MRI room, 
uh, and it wipes the strip. You know, and unfortunately, you just lost whatever money you had on that on that Metro card. You don't lose your credit card bill, Cheryl, right? <laughs> that bill, that bill stays. Uh, but you lose you lose the actual ability to use that Metro card or any type of thing that was using useful for that magnetic strip. So um, we tell everyone put your stuff in a locker, keep it in the locker. Um, if you need to weigh your watch for any reason, just take it off before you go in the room. Well, and I'll say being from the deep south, um, we don't have the same type of transportation systems that you do. So, um, you know, I don't have a metro card anyway. So, Danny, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to ask why, but MRI seems somewhat restrictive. So why is it a better option? What do you use it for to image a patient that makes it better than CT? or any of the other modalities? And if a patient does not qualify for an MRI, what are their options? Right, so you would use MRI in comparison to uh, X-ray or CAT scan, um, just because it doesn't have any radi radiation components. So people feel safer using it. Um, they don't have to worry about the exposures to radiation and the potential um, causes of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's usually why people at least patients geared towards MRI. And when you talk about physicians, it's cross-sectional anatomy. You're gonna see the best vessels. It's really good for brain structure and for neuroimaging. So you're gonna be able to see tumors and hemorrhages, anything at a matter that they're going to need to diagnose and treat. So that's people want to use MR over CT. Um, and if they aren't qualified for MRI, they will always be qualified for CTs and CAT scans and sonograms. So that's, it's always a kit or cat, you know. So you mentioned brain imaging, um, and I've, you know, as a therapist, I've seen some of those for, for planning purposes or diagnosis. So brain imaging, soft tissue, especially for, you know, some sarcomas and, and things like that. So as if you, on your daily working, you know, in your work day, your schedule, what do most of your patients, Daniel, what are most of your patients there for? What are you, what are you scanning? What are you looking for? What, do, what does your patient population look like? Right, so I actually work in a research center and my oh, specific right. department is a neuro department. So I'm scanning the brain in and out. So we use it for functional MRI and we use it for diagnosis MRI. So it's great brain for me. Uh, Anthony could probably tell you more when it comes to hospital work and what their demand is, but us is just straight brain. <laughs> So what do you what do you what do you see a lot, Anthony? What do, what does your patient population look like? What are you looking for? So on our inpatient side, we see a lot of uh, brain work. We see a lot of uh, abdominal work, um, a lot of spine. We, majority of the inpatient workups are going to be more neurological than anything else. On the patient side, we tend to see a lot of more uh, a lot more of the MSK work, uh, the, the knees, the foot, uh, the the ankle, the uh, the shoulders. Stuff like that, um, and that's typically what you're going to see on the outpatient side as well. But the inpatients, we do a lot, a lot of neuro work. You know, and you, you tend to. Uh, the, the great thing is here, we we put in a, a program a couple of years ago uh, that we've implemented uh, for MR appropriateness because we've saw we've seen that the, a lot of the usage of MR had spiked up uh, to uh, like 92 percent capacity of the machine, and no one uh, who the individuals who truly need the examinations during their inpatient stay uh, were, were getting prolonged by two or three days because of all of the, the abundance of over-ordering or inappropriate usage 
of MR. Interesting. Essentially speaking, MR is an elective type of modality that should be used if and when truly needed. Um, so uh, we were able to reduce that to about 48% of, of utilization for just appropriate uh, cases, which was really good. And then when you really uh, kind of honed down on it, it was the, the neuro work that was truly the warranted stuff to, to be done as an inpatient. And so it's interesting you bring that up about the inpatient population. And then, Dana, you talking about working at the, um, you know, that you do do all brain all day. So what in those patients, you mentioned functional MRI, what are, what is the emergency? And I know coming from my side of things, I know what the emergency is, but why you said some of your patients were being delayed by several days. So what is, what is the, um, the rush there? What is it that you're looking for that these, that these patients are inpatients? and that they, they qualify for this MRI and need it quickly? So for us at the Research Center, um, we have two categories of scanning. So one is regular MRI. So this is for disease-related, injury-related circumstances. So these are patients, right? They enter the hospital and they need care right away. Um, the other side is the MRI for research, which is for functional research. And functional research is, allows us to gain knowledge of the activity in our brain. So we're working with cognitive um, issues. Okay. We're working with disease-related issues such as Alzheimer's, dementia. Um, and then we're working with regular population who are just trying to help research um, develop, right? So why do we think this way? Why do we act this way? Um, what can we do to change the way we develop and how can we help the people who do have diseases? How do we allow them to progress or slow down the progression of their diseases or how do drugs even interact with our brain function? Um, so that's that. We have it in this way so that we can separate emergency and the need from non-emergent cases. We have two separate ways. So as the um, MR safety officer there, what does, what is your role in training? Do you train the other staff? Do you provide that type of education? What is your role there to ensure that your patients are taken care of and the staff's taken care of? Yeah, so at Columbia, we actually have a two-tier uh, two training system. And uh -huh. while MRI is universal, as Anthony has stated, uh, we train people differently. We train right. our doctors, technologists, and researchers at a higher level than we would train the janitors, the, the custodial staff, the uh, general administrative staff, who probably aren't going to interact with the machine, but for them to understand the different risks if they do enter or if there is an emergent situation in which they help. Um, we train them at, at a general level, and then we train others at a more complex level. So they really have to thoroughly understand the physics and the components of risk for both their participants, their patients, their subjects, and themselves. Anthony, you mentioned um, earlier yeah. that... Oh, I'm sorry. You mentioned earlier that you do like an annual training. What does this training, because um, Daniel's talked about how comprehensive from, you know, from physicians to janitorial staff to everyone in between. What does this training have to do um, with compliance or accreditation? Like if you're looking for ACR accreditation or something like that, how does this training, what's required of that? And how do you document that so that what's its role in, in accreditation or, um, you know, even from like JACO or whatever? Right, right. So we're, um, we're accredited by Joint Commission. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of that requirement, as part of the accreditation, all the technologists have to have that annual training. Now, the annual training is one part of their um, their HR assessments in their uh, their plan of actions for the Joint Commission. Um, so what we do on the online portal is a technologist would complete the session, they would receive competency, it would be documented in their employee file. Um, so if and, if and when the Joint Commission comes up, they do an HR pull. Uh, mm-hmm. What they do is they, they check the entire employee file for uh, uh, evaluations and uh, uh, safety training and MR training. Uh, this would all then come up, and if, if we're out of compliance, uh, when they do that HR pull, we do get cited. Uh, so it's super important that everyone receives training. You know, on January 1, everyone goes for training with the exception okay. of the new hires. Um, and then they have a, a period of time in which they can complete it. As I said, it's done online and it does get uh, documented with human resources. Gotcha. Okay, so we're about to um, enter enter some different territory here because several years ago they developed the MRI Linux, and I know you've got some of those up there in your area. So you they you know put the MRI with the linear accelerator so that you can image disease sites, make sure that you have the right treatment volume. They're also in some ways adaptive so that if the treatment volume isn't what it may have been when you first looked at it, the machine will actually adapt to that specific volume. So from a training standpoint, Dania, because radiation therapists usually may or may not, I won't say usually, may or may not have any background whatsoever in MR. So I know there was a big question about should radiation therapists be MR certified? And I know there's some facilities, really some big um, university type teaching facilities that required all of their radiation therapists to become credentialed in MR. And so I know that's been a big question in our space. Do we need full MR credentials if we're working on an MRI LINAC? Or is there some abbreviated, um, because we don't need CT credentials to do CT for simulation, but because MRI, MR is so different, do other modalities, if they're working on one of these hybrid machines, do they need full MR credentials? What does that education look like? Um, I would say yes. I think that if you're going to be manning the machine and directly in charge and typically live to your patients and yourself and others around you, I definitely think they need accreditation for that. Um, I don't think that's something as simple as like a small general training would be sufficient enough. They do thoroughly need to know the physics, the components, the safety risk, everything of that nature. And I don't think you could get a, a really thorough understanding and knowledge base from a simple training. So I would say they need to be cross-trained just as a uh, MRI tech would have been a radiology tech prior. So they would need that understanding and um, I wouldn't recommend them just going through uh, working around an MRI without having a license for it. So, Anthony, I'll ask, have you been with your um, with your other venture, with your educational side, have you been approached by any even cancer centers who want to know how to best train their therapist on the MR side? So, believe it or not, we, we have uh, several students actually in our program now from um, the same facility where Danny's working out on the hospital side uh, that work in radiation therapy that are, are doing our MR work uh, as well. So they've we've had and we have currently uh, students 
um, that are training. They, they're going through the same complement of training that any technologist would go through. I couldn't agree with Danny more. It's if you are going to sit in front of a machine and take uh, take on the onus and responsibility as a technologist would, um, mm -hmm. just in, in a different uh, environment, with, such as radiation therapy, um, you should have the same exact education. There, there shouldn't be uh, any difference in what you know versus what a technologist knows. But uh, yeah, it, people are uh, taking these programs and, and they are getting the same ARRT uh, registry um, as, as radiation therapists. We've noticed it for the past year, year and a half. Well, you know, I'm all about education, so um, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I know that I know that there aren't very many of those MRI Linux. I know that they're increasing. Um, the numbers of them are increasing, so we'll see see where that leads. Um, Dania, who sets these safety standards? Who says this is what you have to know? This is who you have to educate. This is what you have to. These are the stickers you have to put on things. Who sets all of that? Who is the guiding body behind all of that? So there's actually several guiding bodies. You have the ACR, which is the American College of Radiology. You also have the FDA, which is the finalizer of all the rules and regulations. You have uh, the American Society for Testing Materials. So they're going to be the ones which test medical devices and implants. So you have different bodies that all coincide and work together so that we are able to maintain um, a safe environment, safe standards, and so that everyone is knowledgeable. So one other safety thing that I wanted to touch on is about contrast. And I know that's been in the news quite a bit. There have been some, you know, celebrities that came out about, against different MR contrast. So Anthony, what, give us a little background on that, a little background on the contrast, and then maybe some of the issues that arose. And then let's talk about what that means going forward. So from our end, we noticed, uh, I think as soon as what was it, Cheryl Chuck Norris was the first one to come out to say that yeah. he had some sort of retention in the brain from, uh, from gadolinium. Um, yeah. There were questions that came up after that, but I have to be honest with you, it was uh, from, from my perspective or, or from what I see every day, it was very short-lived. Um, mm -hmm. we, we don't get really, we don't get those questions asked of us much anymore. We'll, um, it will we'll retain in my brain or it, it, it was kind of like very phasic. It went in and out. Um, it, it was brought publicly and then it kind of disappeared. Um, so it, it was almost like the, um, you know, like when, it, when, when 3D Mammo came out, it was uh, everyone heard it and everyone wanted it. And now it's a standard. Um, but I don't think we're doing anything different on our end as far as uh, the injection and the dose that we give the patients um, because of a few cases of retention in the brain. Um, I think it's it, it's been very well vetted by our radiologists. Um, right. Our questionnaires uh, that uh, the patient reads and fills out prior to an examination speaks very well of, of the contrast and the possible retention, uh, any side effects that the patient may receive from receiving that dose. Um, so it's kind of nipped in the butt very quickly. Uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't see uh, that question come up often. I think when it comes to CT contrast, um, there's more risks uh, associated to receiving a larger dose uh, at a higher rate. Uh, a patient can uh, infiltrate, you can blow the lines, you can right. have you know, 125 cc's on the patient's arm. There's a lot more risk involved, I believe, uh, in CT uh, contrast than MR contrast. 
Well, so that brings up an excellent question that I want to ask, um, Dania. And once again, this is from, you know, from my knowledge, since I don't know the answer to this question, what makes MRI contrast? Why is it specific to MR? Why can you, why do you not use the same contrast? So there's different components in each of the contrasts. So we use gadolinium-based contrast in MRI and the way these, um, these molecules are attached to the hydrogen molecules within the body, they're ligated and there's different viscosity. So as Anthony was saying, it was um, it came out and it was a big deal for a moment with the crossing the brain, brain barrier, sorry, uh, crossing the brain barrier or barium um, retention, I should say, sorry. But it was a big deal when it first came out because we did not know about it. And as I said before, this modality came out in the 70s and these types of liquids and fluids that we're now inducing into the body, we don't know very much about them. So now there's a higher standard um, implemented on these manufacturers of the gadolinium. So they have to state um, the viscosity. They have to state how much uh, potential uh how much of the gadolinium can potentially retain or cross the blood-brain barrier. And these things hold MRI now to a higher standard. So you don't hear about it as much anymore because now it's severely under a microscope, right? People are looking at that. So the difference really just comes with how it works within the MRI. So what components are in this compared to CT and how it allows viscosity and T1 brightening. So it shows up in the image or the region of interest differently than it would in a CT scan. So there's just different materials used in it. And so as, as we're getting ready to wrap this up, I feel like we, uh, we have to spend at least a few minutes, especially in this, this um, tumultuous time that we're in right now. I read an article actually earlier today that talked about um, increased diagnosis because patients weren't going for screening. And they said mam mammo was being hit the hardest, that they, you know, there were some numbers, some data attached to it that they expected, you know, cases of breast cancer that, like I said, that's what this article was, breast cancer to go up, you know, however many percent over the next 10 years. And so what does your department look like now? And I'll ask you first, Dania, especially on the research side. So if you had somebody that you were studying for, you know, like you said, dementia, or if you were looking at some different, um, you know, mental, mental things that you were looking for, you know, watching functional type things like that, has that side of things changed for you because that may have been a little more elective? So what does that look like now? And what do you think the cost of that is for research? Um, so from the research perspective, it's definitely changed. We, um, in prior, prior years and other institutions, for instance, um, if it was a research scan, they didn't expect researchers or even doctors who are researchers who are not qualified radiologists um, to actually read the images, right? They didn't have that liability because they weren't at the educational knowledge to thoroughly interpret these images. They would be able to understand the cross-sectional, especially because they're neuroscientists or whatever type of scientists they are. But now we actually require every single, whether it's a clinical uh, MRI or research MRI, they have to go through a radiology read. It obviously costs more to do something as that. Like now you have to pay for radiologist time. You have to pay for more images being read. You have to pay for the demand to meet reading all of these images in a timely manner. Um, but 
if essentially if you could potentially save somebody's life or help them with a diagnosis that they may not have known, um, especially if it's find or found early enough, um, it's priceless. So for us, we implement it throughout the board. So Anthony, to you, what what is your MRI department departments? What do they look like now? How has that changed, and what do you see the impact, especially in in as a diagnostic or screening tool? So for, for us as on an inpatient side, um, it hasn't changed much, to be quite honest with you. Um, on the outpatient side, it has. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've 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 seen the we, we've seen the consistency of inpatient. Uh, Inpatients receive the same scans pre and post COVID. Right. Um, but on the outpatient side, and even deeper than MR, like we said earlier, mammography, um, you know, we, we had stopped for a while because of COVID allowing uh, screeners to have uh, patients to have screening mammos done because they were at risk of entering the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, so, what does that mean for a patient, right? Does that mean that um, you have a, 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 a potential mass that's gone undiagnosed for five months because you could enter a facility or imaging centers furloughed their techs and they closed the doors because they couldn't sustain the cost or they couldn't remain open as per the right. state law. Um, so I, I think over the next couple of months, as we begin to slowly start to phase in the screeners and bring in the diagnostics, the mammals are going to lead to the breast MRs, they're going to lead to the, mm -hmm. to the, uh, the MR guided breast biopsies. Um, we may see an influx, um, but I think that's that's that has to be expected because of the three to four month pause that we had um, when, when COVID you know first hit us. So I think we've done a great job. I hope everybody else does. So we've talked about some physics. Um, we talked a lot about radiation safety or MR safety, not radiation safety. Um, see, I did learn something. Um, we talked a lot about MR safety, uh, and we even hit on some current topics. So I do want to thank you both for this. I did learn a lot, and I think it's something that I could probably study some more. I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing any educational things right now. I'm not learning anything new right now. I'm not in school. How about that? I've been in school my entire life. So, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll hop in a class with you, Anthony. Awesome. 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 <laughs> No, th thank thanks you. a bunch, y'all. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Danny, it was thank nice seeing you. Nice seeing you as well. Take All care, right, guys. Everybody. Have a great one. Enjoy your summer. Bye. Bye.